weather-related constraints, and so if you are tuning in from home for whatever reason or tuning into Mercy Hill this morning through our live stream, thank you. I do want to encourage you, if you have any issues with the live stream, to, to text me or text one of our church leaders or send an email to the website. We want to make sure that you can access this without any um, hitch. And I do want to thank our, our sound team for doing such a good job each week. We come this morning to the epistle of James in a, in a series that we began um, three weeks ago. This morning is the third installment in that series. And the title of my sermon this morning is The Complete Christian. If you buy a warranty or an insurance policy on a car that offers complete coverage, you know, bumper to bumper, or plastic bumper covered and plastic bumper cover, as the case may be, you wouldn't be happy to learn that the fine print actually says something isn't covered that you thought was covered. Or what about people who like collecting things, whether it's books or LPs, flatware, Star Wars figures, and you buy a complete set, you will not be satisfied if one of the figurines is missing. I ordered a complete set, and that's what I expect. But complete sets of precious things, of rare things, are quite expensive and valuable. To cite one example, I did a search on Etsy for rare china, and this is what I came up with. Rare vintage, 69 to 72, Corningware blue cornflower casserole dish, one quart, with lid. Any idea what its price is? $7,499.99. Apparently the lady who was selling it found it in her grandma's attic having been stored there for 50 years, unused. I ordered it. I wonder what the whole set would be. That's just the casserole dish. Complete sets, as I say, of precious things are costly, and for most of us, they're out of reach or unattainable, but at the end of the day, it is just a dish, isn't it? On the other hand, the amazing truth of the Christian faith is that God, in his mercy and grace, has done a complete work in our lives, a complete and precious work. If you're a follower of Jesus and he has begun his regenerating work in you, he will be faithful, as Paul says in Philippians 1, faithful to complete it at the day of Christ. Amen. James is a very important letter in the New Testament that speaks to people who are far from complete and far from perfect, and many of whom appear to be struggling to keep their faith. And as a result, we have this letter, which James has written, to encourage people who are struggling in their difficulties, but not just to encourage us, to instruct us, so that the people who would read this letter originally and we today can better understand what God is doing in this world and in our lives. 
he writes so that you may become a complete Christian. That's his goal. And he doesn't waste any time getting down to business. For immediately after the greeting, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes of the dispersion, greetings. And then he jumps right in. My sermon this morning, as I say, is entitled The Complete Christian, and I'd like you to think about a couple of questions as I preach this morning. First of all, what should a Christian think about hardship that he or she faces in life? How can a follower of Jesus learn to better respond to challenges and difficulties that he faces? How do your troubles contribute to you becoming a complete Christian? So let's begin by reading a portion of Scripture this morning. It's James chapter 1, verses uh, 2 through 4. And as I read, let's give our attention to the holy, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So far the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is before us, that it has been preserved by your providential care, and we are now giving our attention to its explanation. And Lord, we are ignorant and we need to be taught. We are wandering and we need to be brought back. And we are definitely incomplete and we need to be made whole. So do that this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin by pointing out that the circumstances, first of all, the circumstances of a complete Christian are difficult, quite difficult. James makes this point when he describes your circumstances as characterized in verse 2 by many or various trials. To get a better understand of this, you need to take a peek back at verse 1 of our text. James addresses his letter to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. This describes a region outside of Jerusalem in the Roman province of Palestine, extending all the way to Babylon and beyond. The Jews had lived an expatriate existence in these places and regions for centuries, five, six centuries or more. Yet with the coming of Jesus, his death and resurrection, James, along with the Christian community, believed that Jesus had begun the reconstitution of true Israel that the 12 tribes, which had been lost and scattered through various exiles, were now being reunited in and through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This new covenant messianic community would be the first fruits of God's new creation. But that restoration, while it had begun, it was not yet complete. And so, James is writing to a people that had heard and believed the message of the Messiah, but they struggled to keep the faith in a first century setting and climate that was extremely negative and hostile toward them doing so. How hard are the circumstances which James has in mind? He says that 
your life is marked by facing various trials or trials of many kinds. And I think there are two levels of difficulty worth noting as we think about how hard their lives were. First of all, the difficulty of trials are related to the fact that this world is not the way that it is supposed to be. In this way, we must consider two sorts of trials. The first kind are hardships in general. These are unasked for and unexpected and somewhat out of your control. But the second kind of trials are called temptations, which, unlike the general trials, temptations have or tend to have a specific evil quality to them. And they tend to be pointed directly at you. They tend to be personalized. And sometimes they even come from within your own self, although temptations can come from other people as well. Christians call this evil quality that temptations have, we give it a name, and it's called sin. And sin is simply a way of saying whether in general, the general trials of the world, or specific evil temptations, the world is not the way that it should be. It's certainly not the way that God made it to be. Notice, too, that the trials and temptations that James has in mind are not just one sort. They're a variety. They're a, 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 a multitude of trials. It's, it's like there's a whole toolbox of trials. It's a whole rainbow of trials, a palette of every color. Weather doesn't work the way that it should, right? Some of you were talking about this trial to yourself under your breath as you were shoveling. The snow is heavy. My back isn't what it used to be. You know, the stars and the planets don't work the way that they should. People don't relate to one another the way that they should. Your work isn't fruitful like it should be. You put in a whole day's work, and what did you have to show for it? Nothing. That's not the way things are supposed to be. Governments don't work the way that they should. And your mind and heart do not work the way that it should. So whether trials flow from the difficult nature of life in general or whether it's a result of some specific evil or sin, in both cases, trials prove that the world is not the way that it should be. I want to put it this way. Trials are not part of the world that God made. Trials are part of the world that we made. So we need to understand the difficulty of trials in that sense. A second layer of difficulty in your trials is this. Not only do they point to the world or what's wrong with the world, they are difficult because they are revealing. There's a, a revealing quality to the trials that we face. I want to illustrate this from, from the realm of science. I used to be a science teacher, and one of the subjects I taught when I taught eighth grade science was earth science. And in earth science, we always study geology or rocks. It's super cool. It's boring as rocks, which is not boring at all. Well, when a geologist or a science teacher puts a rock on your lab bench and he asks you to analyze it for its parts, like I would always give my students a piece of granite in the beginning of the lesson, and we look at it, and if you can picture a piece of granite, there's at least three different colors in the granite. There's a gray, there's a silver, and there's a black. And each color represents a different kind of mineral that's contained in that rock. 
Asphalt is another good example. If you ever see a pothole or something and you pick up a piece of, of, the, of the street or the pavement and you look at it and there's tar in there and there's some pebbles and some other things. Well, what you're doing when you're examining this granite or a piece of granite or when you're examining a piece of asphalt or if you're an actual geologist in a lab, you actually get into the chemical composition if you're a chemist of some sort or a chemical geologist or chemical engineer. You determine the proportion of or presence of different aspects in this rock sample. So what does this have to do with trying or trials? I said trials are revealing. And the geologist word for this is assay or to try or to assay something is to take a look at it and to see what's in it. Look at the different parts of it. Trials and troubles, like a geological assay, reveal what's in your character. They show the different component parts, the tar and the pebbles, the, the mica is that shiny part in, in a piece of granite, for instance. In particular, for the Christian, they reveal the nature of your faith. And that's what the text says. It says that these trials test or reveal or assay your faith. It gives you a snapshot, a, a status check, a health check, a, a gauge on where you are with God and with Christ. Which raises a good question. What does James mean by faith? He doesn't explain himself he just states the word faith and James is not undeveloped with his theology he's understated with his theology so as we read James we need to read it and recognize that there's often echoes and allusions that he simply doesn't take time to explain what does he mean by faith I believe James refers to the belief that Jesus died for me on the cross and rose again on the third day that's one thing he means. And so the trials that you face assay or test or reveal or give a status check on how well you understand, know, and believe that Jesus died for me and he rose again from the dead on the third day. Faith also means that Jesus ascended into heaven bodily, which means as our great high priest, he passes through the airy regions the physical regions, into a created but invisible place that we call heaven and sits on a throne, which is a metaphor for his being preeminently displayed as God's chosen servant, his faithful, loyal, and victorious servant. Jesus is at the right hand of God on a throne of grace. And he's there as the God-man, taking your and my humanity into ascended glory. And in that high place of royal rule and reign, he presides over all the circumstances of our lives and the trials that you face. Assay whether you believe that or not or where you struggle with his ascended power in your weakness. Faith, I think, represents the destiny of redeemed humanity that where he is, I will be one day. 
And faith then points to the brief and, mo- and, the, and the comprehension that our lives are brief and momentary. It's a brief and momentary existence. And the trial exposes that. It's like an x-ray, isn't it? Showing a thin hairline fracture in my belief in the afterlife and a personal God who's gone ahead of me and set a table before me in that glorious place. And then it reveals, too, not just how much and how strongly you're committed to a life beyond this life, but do you believe that he's actively with you here and now in this life, that you're already experiencing the joy of your salvation, that you're already experiencing abundant life, that you're already triumphing over all the sins and ills and evils in the world Not perfectly, but progressively. So this is the faith, I think, that gets tested, according to James, by various trials. Trial reveal areas in your life that are not fully true, that are not yet complete. When I'm confronted by a trial, the first thing I see is, wow, this is not the way the world is supposed to be. I set out on my way to somewhere and I didn't arrive at my destination. That's not how it's supposed to be. I got waylaid by a flat tire or a temptation in my mind took me off the path. And thus the trial also reveals something about me, doesn't it? It shows that I'm not gripped by the mind of Christ, my ascended dying, rising, and ascending, Lord. I'm not led by the Spirit of God the way that I should. I'm not walking in the Spirit. There's a lot I've learned about my faith in this trial. So your circumstances are difficult. The circumstances of the complete Christian are quite difficult. This is my first point. Here's how Calvin puts it. We must doubtless take the temptations or trials as including all adverse things. And they are so-called trials because they are tests of our obedience to God. He bids the faithful, while exercised with these, to rejoice. And not only when they fall into one temptation, but into many. Not only of one kind, but of various kinds. Secondly, what kind of action is called for in light of these circumstances, these difficult circumstances? This is my second point. The action of the complete Christian is intentional. This is what a complete Christian does. Take a look at verse 2 again. The first word that James uses is in the ESV, count it all joy. Count it. Synonym, reckon, consider, think. I call this intentional because counting or consideration requires an act of the will. You have to think about something if you're counting it. One, two, three. What did you say? I, I, oh, shoot, i got to start again. One, two, three, four. What, what was that thing over there? You can't count and talk to someone at the same time. I know I can't. Got to focus. Put in those headphones. Turn on the sound machine. Go to a quiet library. Or a noisy Starbucks, but you've got to Focus takes an act of the will. 
Counting or considering means to engage in an intellectual process. That's the dictionary definition. What is this process? Well, James says you are to count, consider, reckon, think about your trials, i.e. your difficult circumstances, which we've talked about, in a particular way that may not be immediately obvious to you upon your first consideration. The word here suggests a kind of self-governing. So if you can picture a group of second graders, if you're a second grader, Picture yourself in class and all of your friends. And now picture the teacher snapping her fingers, holding her to, clapping, or yelling. The second grader's response, depending on the student and the day and the situation, is anywhere from immediate silence across the board, all 22 of them to absolutely ignoring everything that the teacher says. So it's a kind of leadership function to consideration. It's a voice in your head that brings all the noisy second graders inside that brain of yours into immediate attention. And you're quiet. And you're in a single file line. the leading part of your personality, that, that seed of your will, your best self, is called all the other disparate parts, the noisy, chattering crowd of that classroom to attention. When you consider something, it's a redeemed reflectiveness in my book. It's a thoughtful action, not a knee-jerk reaction. You act on your best, not your first impulse. That's why it's intentional. Paul says that what he used to think was important, he now considers unimportant in light of the good news of Jesus in Philippians 3. Here's how he puts it in verse 7. Whatever gain I had, whatever I was thinking, I don't think that way anymore. I now count it as loss. I consider it as absolute rubbish in comparison with the value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. What was I thinking? Living my life that way, acting that way, valuing those things, hanging out with those people, doing that stuff. I wasn't thinking. I was using my brain, but I wasn't using my right brain. I was in my mind, but I wasn't in my right mind. I'm reckoning things differently now. In our passage, James, the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord, addresses the messianically renewed people of God, the brothers in the community, verse 2. He's addressing them, and he's calling on them to think, to be intentional. Before I wrap up the second point, I think a couple of caveats are in order. First of all, considering doesn't mean you ignore your feelings. The Christian faith is not a cold, lifeless, intellectual exercise. We are whole persons, body and soul. And while we are divided into two parts, if I may put it that way, 
our bodies have feelings. And we don't think without our bodies. We are, we are whole persons. And even in the invisible part of ourselves, whether you think of it as a soul or a spirit or a mind or a heart or a will, the Bible speaks in at least a half a dozen different ways about the invisible person. Your feelings matter. But considering it, joy, when faced with various trials, means that you admit and recognize that your feelings are fallen. Your feelings are not the way that they are supposed to be. Now, I'm speaking to people who I know put a lot of stock in how you feel. This is not the builder generation. This isn't the boomer generation. We are preeminently people who know how we feel. Oh, I know my feelings. Feel it. I don't like it. I ain't going to do it. Your feelings don't get the last word. They don't get the final say. Christian consideration, Christian counting, Christian reckoning recognizes that feelings are a gift from God. Feelings communicate important truth to our minds and hearts. They help us live lives that please the Lord. But the kind of consideration which James commends also realizes that your feelings are not ultimate. Like your thoughts, they will deceive you and speak lies to you. They will lead you astray. And so you are required to place your mental and emotional framework at the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not of his feelings or even his preconceived ideas. To illustrate this, it's January still. And since it's almost February, it means that you're about done with your diet. <sighs> I am. I ended last week. I mean, three weeks. Who needs to go on a diet for more than three weeks anyway? Come on. It's plenty of time. If we only followed our feelings, if we only went with the heart, we would never even start a diet, let alone go three weeks or three months, or may God bless you if you go the whole year. You would never start a new exercise program. You would never check yourself into treatment. You would never turn yourself in for breaking the law because you're ashamed and your guilty conscience has gotten the better of you. Thank God for guilty consciences. Thank God for shame. If you only followed your feelings, you would never take another try at killing porn addiction. Most of the greatest actions of the greatest people have come by, by virtue of the fact that they have not followed their feelings. But they made a decision, a difficult and contrary decision. The second caveat is, and it's related to the first, considering or this kind of Christian counting that I'm talking about doesn't mean that you have no sorrow or grief. I'm talking about a specific feeling now. The experience of trials is hard. If you're not grieving your trials, 
There's something wrong. This verse is not advocating pasting a smile on your face and lying to yourself and friends as if everything is okay. My stepmother grew up in a, in a Christian cult that taught that sin was like a cloud. If you thought hard enough, it would just go away like a mist. Sin is real. Hardship is real. Pain is real. Jesus wept at the death of his friend, and if he, the sinless one, would weep when Lazarus died, surely we would weep as well. Grief and sadness are not signs of weakness. They're signs of incompleteness. But there's a wholeness to it as well. The important thing is that when we grieve, we grieve in a way that honors the Lord. Paul describes this sort of grief in 1 Thessalonians 4. You can look it up later. It says, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. What the apostle means is that we grieve, we mourn, we weep in the face of death and the many, many, many ways that death steals from us and brings losses into our lives. We shed tears, we wear black, we're quiet, we're reflective. We might even shy away from the public eye and confine ourselves to a small circle of people for a time, retreating. Yet in our grief, we mix it with hope. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. That is, we do not mourn our loved one's loss as if we had no hope, that they had no life beyond this life that we would never see them again, but they are alive, rather, in life eternal, those whose faith and trust are in Jesus Christ and in his resurrection. So while the ESV says, count it all joy or consider it joy, we wouldn't want to conclude that this phrase, all joy, means nothing but joy, which is how some commentators take this. I disagree. I like the, the NIV's rendering here when it says, consider it pure joy. Ultimate joy. Heavenly joy. The best joy. Think of it this way. James is saying, think of yourself and your circumstances with transcendent heavenly joy. Your trials are being considered or understood not in light of your human, time-bound, earthly circumstances alone, but you need to see them in light of a larger canvas in which God is ruling and controlling all the circumstances of your life for your good. Pure joy. The straight stuff. Third, and finally, and I'll be brief here, what is the hope of the complete Christian? The hope of the complete Christian? This flows from the first two points. As a complete Christian or someone who aspires to be whole or complete, your hope is heaven. By heaven, I mean not just pie in the sky, by and by, as this old saying goes, which is a cynical way of making fun of Christians who have nothing but hope in eternity, and they spend the rest of their natural lives like this. That's not heaven's hope. Heavenly hope is 
believing and living in light of the fact that there is a new world that is coming where all that is wrong is made right. What Peter calls, and he's quoting Isaiah here, the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus calls it the regeneration, the renewal of all things, which has already begun. It's here. John calls it the new Jerusalem. Heaven, in this sense, is the Christian's hope because it enables him to understand three key truths. One, your trials are not permanent. The text emphasizes this when it, when it uses the word perseverance or steadfastness or endurance. They all point to the same thing. It's not forever. You can get through this. We got this. This is going to be over soon. It's not permanent. Second, your trials are not meaningless. The second key truth here is not only are your trials not permanent, there is meaning to them. There are plenty of perspectives, by the way, religious traditions and philosophies that encourage endurance in the, in the face of difficulty. And just go on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, wherever. you find a thousand quotes in, in a minute, pep talks on how to make it. Entire corporations have slapped these little slogans on their, on their, as their logo. But why? That's what we have. There's meaning to your trials. Not only are they not permanent, there's meaning to them. Only a God-centered point of view can say that trials are not meaningless. And our text highlights the meaningful quality of trials by indicating that they have a purpose. First, endurance, the text says, and second, wholeness, rephrased, not lacking anything. Wholeness is a key theme in the letter of James, and it will come up again next week as James warns about being divided or having a double mind, living a divided lifestyle, having a loyalty here and here. Think of it as one foot in and one foot out. So the purpose of your trials is to address this divided nature of the human heart. Your internal divisions, your confusion, your lack of comprehension. You're saying one thing and doing another. God is determined through this letter to enable you to see that your trials are developing a whole and integrated heart for God. As a member of God's new community of Israel, as one of the first fruits of his new creation, he aims for you to live a life of undivided devotion to him. And to that end, the things that you are experiencing are not meaningless, but in his sovereign hand, they serve an eternal purpose. And the third key truth here is that trials are not individual. And by this, I mean no one needs to suffer alone. James addresses this to the brethren, to the brothers which is an inclusive term of the entire Christian community. There's nothing worse than trying to figure out your problems alone. And COVID hasn't helped with this. The isolation that many of you have experienced through these two years of 
masking and seclusion and lockdowns and social distancing. What a terrible word. Physical distancing's a little better. You know, at the Wawa, please respect other customers and keep your distance. I mean, I know what we're trying to do. But, but think about the significance of that on a social level for us. No one needs to suffer alone. And the church is designed to be a community in which the young and the old, the rich and the poor, men and women, and, and all people of all nations can come together and suffer together, carrying each other's burdens, getting beyond the chit-chat and just backslapping the people that you know and coming beside the prodigal and the Samaritan and lifting him up or lifting her up taking them into your home, COVID notwithstanding, opening your doors, encountering risks. Do you know my friend in, in New York, just outside of the city, performed at least two dozen funerals in the first season of COVID. He's a godly Christian pastor because his Roman Catholic priest in the, in the parish would not do it. Now, I hope that's not true of that church as a whole, but it's emblematic. We are called to take risks for Christ, to come near for Christ. And particularly the vulnerability involved when I open up my heart and say, you know, Paul, Adam, I'm suffering. I can't make it alone. And both of those guys I name for a reason because they know I'm suffering. They know my burdens. Sometimes we take heed as a church for prioritizing church membership, and, and we do prioritize that. But why do we do that? Because we think it's good for you. We think God is good for us to be yoked together and committed in a disposable culture. We're making promises to one another. We don't suffer alone. Well, there's so many beautiful and compelling stories of godly men and women who have suffered various trials in their lives. And I want to commend to you as I conclude this morning, reading Christian biographies, reading the biographies of the great saints. Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's a little over the top in places, but unbelievable stories of faithful, godly men and women over the centuries. Just read the story of Polycarp, as for starters. Read Augustine's Confessions. Reread it if you've read it. My wife is determined to make this year an Elizabeth Elliot year. Now there's a woman. There's a woman. My wife, yes, but I'm talking about Elizabeth Elliot. The woman I'm going to point out this morning as I conclude is a woman named Margaret Clarkson. You probably haven't heard of her. She's a Christian and a hymn writer of the last century. She suffered much in her life. But she suffered and encountered trials in an exemplary Christian manner. And I shared this anecdote way back in 2001 in my first pulpit. I'm going to share it again this morning. Mrs. Clarkson writes this about her suffering. Pain is pain and sorrow is sorrow. She says it hurts, it limits, it impoverishes 
it isolates, it restrains, it works devastation deep within the personality, circumscribes in a thousand different ways. There's nothing good about it. Nothing good about it. But, she says, the gifts God can give with it are the richest the human spirit can know. She went on to express this beautiful insight in a famous hymn. It's in our Trinity hymnals called, O Father, You Are Sovereign. Here are two lines of that hymn that speak to what we've been learning this morning. O Father, You are Sovereign, the Lord of human pain, transmuting earthly sorrows to gold of heavenly gain, all evil overruling as none but conqueror could. Your love pursues its purpose, our soul's eternal good. O Father, you are sovereign, we see you dimly now, but soon before your triumph, earth's every knee shall bow. With this glad hope before us, our faith springs forth anew. Our sovereign Lord and Savior, we trust and worship you. I began this morning by talking about how collectors long for and live for completing the set they're collecting, whether that be toy tractors or, like my cousin, Toyotas of late 1970s, early 1980s vintage. He's got eight of them. His comment to me was, everyone should have one. Spoken like a true collector. Our efforts at collecting and making things complete invariably fall short in this life. The good news is that God never fails at his efforts to make his people complete. Our task is to cooperate with him with the help of the Holy Spirit by thinking and acting as a renewed covenant community and we are confronted with various trials. Here are three simple strategies I will leave you with this morning. Number one, reduce or enlarge your scope as the case may be. When you're facing a trial, you need to reduce your scope like this. Give us this day our daily bread. One day's bread is enough. That's reducing your scope. Enlarging it is taking that wider picture of heaven, which I've described before. Reduce or enlarge your scope. Secondly, concentrate on unchanging truths. Here are a couple for your reflection. God is real. God loves you. God has not forgotten you. He has not abandoned you. I am filled with the Holy Spirit. He has promised that he will never leave me or forsake me. As you concentrate on them, rehearse them to yourself, preach them to yourself as David does in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, David says. And then third and finally, reprioritize what's important to you or review your priorities. You know, not everything in life is of the same weight or of the same significance. The catechism teaches that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that means that we have lots of purposes, lots of ends in our lives, but not not everyone is of equal value, and certainly nothing should match our chief and highest goal, which is to live our lives for God. By following these three simple practices and others like them, you will begin to resemble more and more the complete Christian which God intends you to be in and through His Son. When that process is finally complete, What a day of rejoicing that will be. And in that day, you will no longer need to consider it pure joy because it will be pure joy. Let us pray. 
Lord, we thank you for your word this morning, and we pray that it will have met us in the place where we need to be met. It will address us in the place where we are hurting, suffering, struggling. May your word do its work by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.